This is Grace Talks, a production of Simpson United Methodist Church in Bangor, Michigan. Our scripture reading today is from John 20, 19 through 31. Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this he said, he showed, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sides. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God our Lord and Savior. Amen. So what if I told you that pastors have their doubts? Our times of disbelief, I know it's strange to think about. Our dark nights of the soul, to borrow the language of 16th century John, St. John of the Cross. The fact is that pastors struggle, pastors doubt, pastors have their stints of atheism or wondering where we're left when we ponder the question as to whether or not we actually believe any of this is real, whether we should just run off and do something else. There's an unsubstantiated statistic that says that half of pastors quit within the first five years, but there's another 
statistic that says that in the last two years over the course of the pandemic, some 38% of pastors have admitted that they've considered quitting ministry altogether. I think at this point I have more seminary friends who have left full-time ministry than who have stayed, and having experienced my own rejection and hardships, I can see why this is. Now, while there was a time where the cultural expectation was that everyone had to at least pay some lip service to the idea that everyone believed in God and that everyone was a Christian, we now live in a time where belief in God, or at least the Christian God, is almost an exception rather than the rule. This is, of course, not to say that it's altogether gone from the cultural consciousness because we still have our politicians and public figures who still use the language whether or not they actually believe it. But it seems almost evident that there is little actual belief in God on an institutional or structural level. At this point, there exists almost this sort of cultural nihilism, for lack of a better word. It's, a, it's something that's probably always been there, but it's become far more pronounced over the course of the 20th century as our ability to destroy both ourselves and the world itself has become all the more pronounced. The influences of war and violence and colonialism and neoliberalism and racism and so many other factors and powers have worn down our consciousness, consciences to the point that we've entered into this era where it seems as though we don't really know what to believe anymore. It seems as though in many ways the only ethic is consume and survive at all costs. Now, in a culture such as ours, it's little surprise that religion seems to be dying this slow and drawn-out death in the face of the world's powers. And in the midst of this, it's easy to give in to a sense of hopelessness, to feel as though there is little to look forward to or hope for. And so we look at Thomas. Now Thomas, when we look at him and when we see him, we see a disciple with an analytical mind. This is a disciple who is not open to an instant belief in the unknown or the unseeable. Thomas needs to see before he will believe. He needs to touch. He needs to experience. And do you know what's incredible about that? At no point is he condemned for his disbelief. At no point is he called less for his disbelief. In fact, Thomas is just the unlucky disciple who is recorded as being the last to believe. When we look at the other disciples, we realize that no one else believed right away either. They all had to be shown. They all had to have Christ be revealed to them. When Mary and the other disciples went to the tomb, they did not immediately believe the angels who stood there and told them that Christ was risen. They had to meet the risen Christ. When Peter and the other disciples heard from the women that Jesus had risen, they also 
didn't believe right away. They had to see the risen Christ. And then here we have Thomas. Thomas, who is just following in the same path as everyone else, despite the other disciples telling him that they have seen the risen Jesus, he does not believe it. It's simply too far outside the realm of belief. It's simply illogical. Now, there's another reason that Thomas is important because Thomas has this ability to raise the question of belief versus faith. Thomas, like the other disciples, believe in Christ at the end of this passage, but do they have faith in Christ? And I don't think we can fully answer that. We can say probably, but the text leaves us with them believing, but not necessarily having faith as of yet. So what is faith and what is belief? What's the difference between these two things? Well, as Hebrews puts it, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's easy to, that's easy to understand, right? I have to read that about 10 times before I even begin to scratch at what that might mean. So let me phrase it differently. Faith is trust. Faith is the belief, or, or rather, while belief is the acknowledgement of a thing existing, a thing that may or may not have our best interest at heart, faith is the belief that a thing will, will do what it is designed to do or that a person will do what they say they'll do. Now, if I jump from an airplane, whether I believe in gravity or not, it's going to drag me down because gravity doesn't care if I believe in it. But... I have to have faith in my parachute, otherwise I'm just committing myself to a glorified form of suicide. But the question becomes, what if there are times when it's harder to place our trust or our faith into that parachute? What if we've had our confidence in the thing shaken to the point that our faith is shattered, our faith is bruised, our faith is battered. Well, that leads me to, I think, the summary statement of this sermon, the one that Carla has to write down and underline. <laughs> I know you're listening. <laughs> it's not a sin to doubt. Truthfully, it might even be necessary for faith to exist at all. Whereas gravity exists, whether I believe in gravity or not, my faith in the parachute may not be well-founded because there is no 100% guarantee that the parachute will not fail me. For Thomas, there was no 100% guarantee that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave, despite what the other disciples had told him, despite Jesus having told him several times over that he would raise from the dead, still he was being asked to believe the impossible. The dead do not walk. It's simply impossible. It's beyond belief. And so for Thomas to reach the point where he could not where he could place his faith and not just faith but his belief in Jesus 
he had to have this moment of doubt because the doubt provided him the competing force that Jesus overcame. Jesus overcame the doubt. Faith without doubt is arrogance, and arrogance is a destroyer of love. It's a destroyer of relationship. It's a destroyer of community. When we become certain of something, when we become unbudging of something with no room for disagreement or debate, then ultimately we set a barrier down between ourselves and others saying that you have, we have to believe this, and if we don't, we will not associate with that person. We have a tendency when it comes to faith to think of faith as something of an upward journey, of thinking of faith as a mountain, thinking of faith as a stairway, thinking of faith as a ladder, something that we're climbing. But I think it's more accurate to think of faith as a muscle. So some time ago I learned, and this seemed crazy to me, and I had to look it up several times to make sure I wasn't making it up, but a muscle in order to grow, needs to be torn. A muscle grows through micro-tears, through thousands and millions of tiny tears along the fabric of the muscle, which heal and form new, fi new muscle fibers. Now, there's a few doctors and nurses in here, and I hope I'm not making a fool of myself, so I think that's true. Mary? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> To grow a muscle requires tearing it. Now, we aren't exactly evangelicals, not all of us anyway, and so I don't know how much of this next part will be relevant, but it bears saying anyway. There's a lot that is being said about a new buzzword that's heard in Christian circles, and that buzzword is deconstruction. Now, deconstruction is this practice of pulling one's faith apart and looking at the individual pieces with fresh eyes and determining, do I really believe this part? Do I really believe this part? And if not, what does that mean for the whole? And there's a tendency to think about this as something new, hence the, in some cases, outrage and fear over this idea of deconstruction. But I would say that it's nothing new, that deconstruction has always been happening because deconstruction is just the experience of life. It's looking at life and figuring out the different pieces and how they fit together. This is what Jesus did through his entire ministry. This is what Thomas is doing in this passage. He asks to put his hands in the side of Christ before he will believe. And Jesus has him do that. To deconstruct is to look at the individual pieces of what makes our faith or our belief systems work and then determine if they fit together the way they should. It is to look at the trees in the forest and then debate whether, whether the forest needs some landscaping or if in some cases we need a forest fire. Now, perhaps what's difficult in this moment that we're living in is that it seems as though we're being asked, or is, it seems as though we are asking more questions than ever. 
We're so connected now that we are hearing perspectives that we would have never heard before without some real globetrotting. And it's causing us to have to reevaluate ourselves in the world. And that can be frightening. But it can also be exciting. If we realize that so much of the Christian walk is about figuring it out as we go, then maybe we can come to realize that we're not so different than from those disciples huddled together in that locked room wondering if Jesus was going to show up again. This is what life is. This is what the church is. If we ever think that we've made it, then we're fooling ourselves because the fact is that we always have to adapt, we always have to change, we always have to bend, we always have to look at the world with fresh eyes. Now many of you have been in this church your whole life. And the fact is that you can probably remember instances where you've had to reconsider how you think about not only the church, but how you think about the community of Bangor and the world itself. How many of us would have ever guessed that there would be legal dispensaries on Main Street that anyone can just walk into and buy weed legally? What would grandma have thought of that? What does grandma still think of that? <laughs> now this is of course assuming that some of you don't have really cool grandmas. <laughs> I know there's a few. <laughs> For some of us, maybe we remember the first female pastor that came here. For some of us, maybe we remember the first pastor under the age of say 35. I don't know who the youngest pastor before me was. Apparently it was Jim Hodges. <laughs> Or Jim Hodge? <laughs> I'm putting that on Christy over there because she's the one who gave me that name. He seemed pretty old. <laughs> I hear that too. So, <laughs> so in some cases, the changes have been easy. In other cases, the changes have been hard. For some things, we've been able to just accept the change at face value. For others, we've had to put our hands in the holes before we would believe. And this is what brings me to my final point. Because when we see the risen Christ in this passage, we find that there's something different about him. He appears to the disciples despite the fact that they are in a locked room. Jesus walks despite his open wounds. He still bears the scars. And so to believe, to have faith, is to not simply see things return to normal with no memory or sign of what's happened or what stands in the past. Rather, it's to keep moving while understanding that we still carry our scars with us. We are a people, we are a church that is eternally on the edge of tomorrow. We take fresh steps into the future at every moment in every day and such is the nature of, of existence. We have to forge ahead, we have to move forward and with hope 
do that with our faith, with our face, faith placed in the love of Jesus Christ. We recognize that we always carry our past with us. We will never fully shake we, re, we will never fully shake off who we have been, but the question must always be, do we bear those scars as open and harmful wounds which hold us back, or do we bear them as a blessing for what guides us forward? <laughs> so I'm going to go on a tangent for just a moment, go off script because this is a funny anecdote. I'm dragging you into this. I'm dragging you into this. <laughs> so Ellen told me at one point that she remembers when she was a kid, if she made noise in church, she'd get in trouble. <laughs> and how many of us remember that very same thing for either ourselves or maybe our children, that if the kids act up, we get in trouble. We had to change. We had to see that this is a blessing. <laughs> we had to recognize that a church filled with the noise of children is better than a church with no children at all. <laughs> so for the next three weeks, before Ellen and I get married again, <laughs> we're already married, but we're having our ceremony, which was put off because of COVID, finally. <laughs> And so for the three weeks before that, I'm going to be taking us through some passages on the theme of growing and cultivation and farming as it relates to the earth and how it is that we live our lives together. Fortunately, I was given some resources, some extra resources that I wasn't expecting for that, so that's very helpful. <laughs> and my hope is that this might get us thinking about what it is that we want to be in the decades moving forward as Bangor, or here in Bangor as the Simpson United Methodist Church. Because we are in a time right now where it feels as though we will either have to draw closer together and closer into a tighter and more sharing and equitable community, or we'll have to risk suffering and greater hardships than ever before. And so the question that we have to consider and reconsider is, can we become leaders in Bangor in ways we haven't been? Should we become leaders in Bangor in ways we haven't been? We've done it before, and it maybe sets before us the opportunity to see ourselves use the scars of our past and guide us as to how to do it again. I've said this before, but my goal in this church is not to take over and turn the church into the first Bangor church of Corey Simon. 
My goal is to see what we've already done, where we've already been. It's to see the scars that we already bear and use those to determine and help consider where we might go from here. It's to take passions that we already have and see where we might continue to let them take us. I know we have a congregation here that is passionate about serving our community and serving our neighbors. And my question and my focus is, where do we take that from here, from where we have been in the past? How will we show our scars and bless others with them? Amen.